Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix. I was actually on the plane when it was becoming increasingly obvious she couldn't win. And people started calling out to me from rows back and from across the aisle. So I'm staring at my phone. They're all staring at their phones and they're leaning out before of their seats before we can uh, disembark saying, Julia, Julia, what is, what, what's going on? What does this mean? And so we had like a little impromptu stand-up meeting at Sydney Airport where people kind of just clustered around me to see what I thought. And I ended up saying, look, I'm really sorry, but I think she's going to lose. Welcome to this very exciting In Conversation episode of Shameless with Julia Gillard. We've been tossing around how to introduce someone as influential and iconic as the first ever female Prime Minister of Australia, so here's our best shot. Julia served as the 27th Prime Minister of Australia and leader of the Australian Labor Party from 2010 to 2013. In that time, she was revered for her accomplishments in the areas of education reform and the introduction of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Julia is now the chair of Beyond Blue, supporting everyday Australians living with mental illness and the author of two books, My Story, published in 2014, and her most recent work, Women and Leadership, which she co-wrote with Nigerian economist Ngozi Okojo Awela and was published just last week. In this chat, we of course cover Julia's life before politics, but also the sexism she faced in office, the moment she found out Donald Trump had won the US presidency over Hillary Clinton, her feelings about the future and that misogyny speech. Julia was so warm and witty and downright delightful, and we are over the moon to have the privilege of sharing her thoughts and insights on our podcast. Here is Julia. Julia Gillard, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. We are so excited to have you. I'm very pleased to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Julia, normally we start with another question, but given everything going on in the world right now, we think the best place to start with you is how are you doing? It's a bizarre year. How are you coping with it all? This is not the 2020 any of us expected, and it's certainly not the one I planned for. So I've been cancelling overseas trip after overseas trip because I do a lot of work in London with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, and I kind of go around the world a fair bit for the Global Partnership for Education, which I chair, which supports school education in poorer countries. So instead, the circumference of my world has been, you know, reduced to this laptop, and many of the organisations 
organisations I work with have really had to step up. It's been very intense and most notably beyond blue because, gee, the volume of demand for mental health support has been astronomical. So that's my world now. I've just come back from Sydney to Adelaide, so I'm now in 14 days of lockdown. Here we go, another round of self-isolation. <laughs> well, that is a beautiful lead into our next question because the next one we always ask is what are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment that you would recommend to other women because I imagine you're going to have some free time on your hands. <laughs> you know, somehow it always manages to work out that I don't end up with the free time. I'm, I manage it to fill it in. At the moment, I'm, I'm not particularly reading anything focused on women right now. I just finished Yvette Cooper's She Speaks, which is a collection of women's speeches, which I'd very much recommend. I'm actually reading a Richard Feidler history about Constantinople, which I'm very much enjoying. But I've set myself a medium-term goal, which might actually turn into a long-term goal, to read all of the works of Virginia Woolf, the noted feminist, because the Global Institute for Women's Leadership works out of the Virginia Woolf building. And whilst I've read some of her works, I feel like I should read all of them. How many is all of them? I feel like there'd be a lot. (laughs) Uh, It's a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) She wrote a number of books. She published collections of essays. Of course, uh, there are some wonderful uh, histories, uh, biographies written about her. So really, it's a long-term goal, isn't it? Not a medium-term goal. I'm kidding myself. (laughs) Julia, the next question we ask every In Conversation guest is about their childhood. You were born in Wales. You migrated to Australia as a child in 1966 with your family of course. What are your memories of your childhood? What was your childhood like? I don't have any original memories of Wales because I was only, you know, four turning five when we left. I do have a very vague memory of being on the ship that brought us to Australia. And I've got a very vague memory of being in the migrant hostel in Adelaide. We were originally in the Pennington migrant hostel before my parents uh, got accommodation for us. But my predominant memories are really of our house in Truro Avenue in Kingswood, South Australia. Very ordinary suburban life. Went to the local public schools, infant school, primary school, high school. Did all the usual things. We used to spend a lot of time at a local park called Brownhill Creek. And, you know, it was a Easy. I had a, a, an easy childhood, no major traumas, no big events. What was different for us as a migrant family was we only had each other. We didn't have any extended family in Australia, no aunts or uncles or grandparents or anything like that. So there was an intensity to it, you know, mum, dad, my sister and I. What was it that drew you to federal politics? You had an incredibly successful career in law. What draws someone who's already really successful in their field to go, you know what, I'm just going to I'm going to give politics a shot? I kind of got the taste for it before I finished my law degree and started practicing as a lawyer. So I never imagined growing up uh, that I would be involved in politics. And, you know, it would have seemed then, because we were this very sort of, you know, standard family, that if anybody had said to me then, look, you could think about a career in politics, I just would have said, you know, people like us don't do things like that. It would have been like someone saying to you, well, you could be an astronaut, you know, like, no, you couldn't. Other people do things like that. 
And I guess, you know, looking back on it, that would have been compounded by the absence of female role models. I would have had it in the back of my brain. It was something that men did. But when I went to university and felt very privileged to be there, there was a set of government cutbacks and I got involved in a campaign about university funding. I ended up getting involved in the local student union and then in the national student union. And that gave me a taste that if you really believed in something and you got involved in campaigning around it, you could make a difference. So out of all of that, across my sort of mid-20s, I formed this ambition to take this newfound enthusiasm for public policy and change and try and pursue it in the federal parliament. Was that strength of character something that was kind of omnipresent throughout your life? Were you really strong as a child and really vocal as a child or was it something that did come along with adulthood? I was actually a pretty shy child. I wasn't the one who would be, you know, dominating for attention or wanting to perform in front of the class. I did in the latter years of high school take up high school debating basically because two of my best friends wanted to do it. So I decided I'd do it with them. And I did discover a taste for a bit of an argument. I'm not the sort of person who would enjoy an argument one-to-one. You know, I wouldn't want to sit with the two of you over a cup of coffee and have an argument. I'd find that quite confronting. But in the more stylized, you know, debating parliament, then I can be, you know, I can enjoy putting forward a point of view and structuring it like that. So I found a taste for it. And obviously that came in handy across my political life. (laughs) I mean, it sure did. I wanted to ask you a really simple question, and I imagine it's one you've been asked before, but I really want to know, you were obviously the first female Prime Minister of Australia, and when that happened, when you were sworn in, what did that feel like? Did the gravity of that hit you in that moment? It did at the swearing in. I mean, the swearing in is the formal bit and there was obviously many hours leading up to that where I knew I was going to be Prime Minister, but you, you know, hadn't been formally sworn in. So, you know, from the moment that the Labor Party room endorsed me as leader, I knew I was going to be Prime Minister. And the reason it hit me then wasn't actually the gravity of the you know, formal swearing in, it was that it was being done by a female Governor-General. And Quentin Bryce is someone who across her lifetime, when it was really, really hard and had fought for gender equality. And I kind of could see in her eyes how, you know, incredible this moment was for her. And so I sort of picked that up, you know, I I took the time, which I hadn't taken until that point to just go, yes, this is happening and to really feel it and feel the significance of being the first. Julia, you've just co-authored a book with Ngozi Okojo Awela. It's called Women in Leadership. And a lot of the book is exploring all the hurdles that are placed in front of female leaders that aren't necessarily placed in front of their male counterparts. We want to talk to you about an article that was published by political journalist Michelle Grattan in June 2010. This was after you were made Prime Minister. And this is a direct quote from that article. 
Nice girls don't carry knives. So Julia Gillard, who has arrived in the prime ministership with the image of the clean, fair player, knows she has to be persuasive in explaining how she came to plunge one into Kevin's neck. She finished with, as the government gets back on track, there will still be plenty of spin. But Gillard does do it with panache and that disarming girlish laugh. Did you read those kind of articles at the time? And I wonder, do you think very deeply about them or do you want to get on with the job and just kind of not think about the overtones and undertones of what's being reported about you? In the moment, you've got to get on with the job. Uh, You do have to be across the media because the media feeds on the media and you're going out to press conferences every day. So you have to know what's in it. I would read all of the newspapers myself. I know that sounds very um, yesterday. Imagine that, getting out a newspaper Mm -hmm. and turning pages. But I would read all of the newspapers myself early in the morning and then I'd get briefed by the media team about what was happening on radio and TV. So you were across it, but you couldn't let it get in your head too much. You had to get on with the job. And one of the things for me now in the time post-politics is... I knew as it was happening that I was being treated differently because I was a woman, but I didn't have the time and space day after day to unpack that or think about it. And in the time since, when I first wrote my book about my time in office, my story, I tried to analyse what happened around being the first woman. And I got so intrigued by it that led me to suggest to King's College we start the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, which we've done, and we're now going to have a sister office at the Australian National University. And then ultimately it led me to writing this book. And I do think, reflecting back now, that, you know, there's always a reaction when a new Prime Minister comes on the scene, whether that's because they've been elected at an election or the leadership of a political party has changed, you know, Paul Keating taking over from Bob Hawke, for example. But I do think there was an extra kind of frisson around it because it was a woman taking power from a man. In your prologue, Ewan Ngozi wrote at the very start, something is going on, women leaders all seem to be facing the same kinds of problems. Why is it as bad as this and not getting any better? What kind of dots were the two of you connecting when you were looking globally at women in leadership? Well, I think the dots we were connecting at that time, I mean, it wasn't so much a dot as a boulder falling from the sky, but when uh, when Hillary lost, that sparked a million conversations. But even in the lead up to Hillary losing, when I would see Ngozi at various international events, she'd tell me about things that were happening and discussions she'd had. She's, you know, would see other African leaders, people like Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and Joyce Bander, and they would tell her stories about things they'd experienced as women leaders. And then she would speak to, you know, women like Erna Solberg from Norway. And, you know, both she and I having those conversations started thinking, you know, We see women from right around the world, different cultures, different contexts, and yet they keep saying the same things to us. I mean, how's that possible? Why why are we still in this moment where so many women are recording such obvious differential treatment? And so we were musing about it. And then when Hillary lost, it moved from musing to we've really got to do something about this. We've got to collect these experiences and try and analyse them. 
The day Hillary lost, what was that like for you? Because I think for a lot of women, it's a crystal clear memory. Like I remember exactly where I was, exactly what I was doing on the day that Hillary lost to Donald Trump. How did you cope with that loss and how did that feel for you personally? I know exactly where I was too. <laughs> I needed to go from Adelaide to Sydney. I had an event very early the next day, so too early to fly in the morning. And so I arranged to fly during the day and I was going out with a friend to see a play in Sydney and then I was going to do the things I needed to do the next day. So I was actually on the plane when it was becoming increasingly obvious she couldn't win. And so I walked onto the plane, you know, staring at my mobile phone to get the news feeds and sort of a little bit concerned. And then when the plane touched down in Sydney, put my phone on immediately and it all started flooding in and it was clear she was very unlikely to win. At that stage, it was, you know, theoretically possible, but really not going to happen. And, you know, people had seen me on the plane but, you know, normally people say hello or something and then they leave you to it. But people started calling out to me from rows back and from across the aisle. So I'm staring at my phone. They're all staring at their phones and they're leaning out before of their seats before we can uh, disembark saying, Julia, Julia, what is what, what's going on? What does this mean? And so <laughs> we had like a little impromptu stand-up meeting um, at Sydney Airport where people kind of just clustered around me to see what I thought. And I ended up saying, look, I'm really sorry, but I think she's going to lose. And, you know, like everyone was shocked, you know, sort of, I mean, I don't know what walks of life or background those people came from because I only saw them in that moment. But it seemed to me like I was seeing a, you know, cross-section of Australians and they were all really upset. And then I met my friend who's, you know, quite an interested political person. He uh, worked in politics with me and we did go and see the play, but then we did have to have a few glasses of wine afterwards and a bit of commiseration. It was just so sad. I think everybody had a bit of a commiseration drink that last night. What a story that one is. You, another <laughs> quote in the book, you said, the longer I served as Prime Minister, the more shrill the sexism became. You're not beating around the bush in any of these quotes. Was there a day you decided enough is enough that this is heating fever pitch? No, not really. I mean, I was obviously very unhappy the day of the, you know, ditch the witch, Bob Brown's bitch rally outside Parliament House with Tony Abbott addressing the crowd standing in front of those signs. And a number of those protesters came into the public galleries in question time and a few of them sort of called out at me. So I was incensed by that. And I think, you know, in the question and answer session that day, the fact I thought that was grossly unacceptable very much showed. People would point to the misogyny speech and say you must in that moment have felt it all come together and in many ways that's right. You know, I did at that moment feel what had been building for some time, this sense of frustration that I was being treated differently and because of the politics of the day, I was now apparently going to be criticised in the parliament for me not being good enough on sexism. And that did spill out into the cool anger that fueled the misogyny speech. Let's talk about that misogyny speech for just a little bit, because it is so incredibly relevant today. In fact, I would say more relevant now, particularly 
with our audience. We speak to women in their 20s. And when we posted about the 10-year anniversary of your prime ministership and also about that iconic speech, it became our most liked photo on Instagram ever. (laughs) And I think so many women online on TikTok and on Instagram in particular adore that speech. They think it sings to them and sings to their experience of the world. Do you think the fact that we're living in a Donald Trump era has anything to do with that? Do you think the fact that we saw Donald Trump be voted in over Hillary Clinton galvanised this feeling within young women? I do. I absolutely do. I mean, we talk about the waves of feminism when people talk about feminist history. And what sometimes gets left out of that story is waves always have a backwash. And I think when I was Prime Minister, we were at a time when the backwash wasn't obvious. And so it was pretty easy. You know, the world had gone through a huge economic crisis. People were focused on the economy, on jobs, on security. Young people would have been thinking to themselves, gee, you know, am I going to get an opportunity when I leave school or or tech or university? And At that stage, I think if you talk to a lot of young women, they would have said, look, I need to focus on these, you know, things, getting a job and the like, making my way in the world. And on feminism and women's equality, look, things are getting better and maybe the rate of change isn't quick enough, but things are getting better. After Hillary lost, after seeing some of my experiences, after experiencing this world, I think for many young women, it came home, look, things don't just go like that. Sometimes they're at real risk of going backwards. And that's intrigued them again about feminism and made them want to make a contribution to it. But it's also driven a set of behaviours in people's own lives where they're prepared to, you know, take a pretty strident step forward and say, look, I'm not going to be treated differently. I'm not going to tolerate this. But that comes at a cost and, you know, people, I think, listening to the misogyny speech to kind of get them up for the next bit (laughs) of that struggle, I think that does happen and I never foresaw that when I gave the speech but I'm glad it happens and that it's got that resonance for young women. Erna Solberg, who is the Prime Minister of Norway, told you in your book, I worked out years ago to always smile a little bit so everyone always thought I was in a good mood. I want to know, were there conversations you had back when you were in office that you had to be conscious of how your face was resting in order to be or appear more likeable? I wasn't aware of resting bitch face then. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Er Erna Solberg uh, joked with Ngozi and I when she first came into the room for the interview that her media advisor had explained to her what resting bitch face is. (laughs) Um, that That wasn't a thing when I was Prime Minister. But It wasn't that anybody would be in my ear saying, you know, smile more or anything like that, but you were conscious, and the women leaders we interviewed for the book talk about this, you were conscious that, you know, there's a a kind of pretty narrow pathway between looking too tough and people thinking you're not at all likeable and looking too emotional and people thinking you're too weak to lead. I was conscious of that. And all of our women leaders talk about being conscious of that. 
and sometimes self-limiting their behaviours because of it. And looking back, you know, I can see that, you know, I did limit some of my own behaviours because I was conscious of it. And it does make you tighten up and then you get the criticism that you're, you know, robotic, not authentic enough, not, you know, putting yourself forward, being told what to say. And that's a, it's a common criticism of politicians, but I think there's a particular bite to it when it's used against women and the woman we interviewed who probably had that the most was Theresa May who routinely got referred to as the Maybot and you know dreadful headlines you know the Maybot is malfunctioning and things like that to really you know just stereotype who she was and the whole thing was alienating for her It was, you know, begging people to conclude that she wasn't someone that they could feel a connection with. Coming up after the break, why do we look down on women like Julia who choose not to have children? But first, a word from today's sponsor. My favourite chapter in the book, Julia, was talking about quite a dichotomy with women leaders. We want women leaders to be maternal. We want them to want kids and we want them to show that they want to spend time with their kids apparently. But women who do have kids are almost, they're kind of like never going to succeed at that because then they get accused of not spending enough time with their children, not being home enough, not being a good mother. Then women who prioritise their career and choose not to have children are accused of being completely unmaternal, of being barren, all of these ridiculous names and labels that we give to them. How did that feel for you personally when you were in office? Was it a frustration for you that the matter of children was brought up so frequently when it isn't really even a question when a male politician doesn't want to have children? Oh, hugely frustrating. I mean, I worked out really early on in my political career that for a woman in politics, there is no right answer to the question, do you have children? No right answer. Because if you say you don't, then, and I don't, people think, you know, oh, uh, she doesn't understand anything about family life. How does she know what ordinary Australians are going through? And I think there's a little bit of a suspicion that, oh, you know, career girl, ambitious, power hungry, didn't even stop to have kids, you know, that relentless about where she wants to go. And then if you do have kids, and many of my female colleagues experience this, Tanya Plebisek, Nicola Roxon and many others, then the next question is, well, how are you going to, you know, represent us in Parliament? How are you going to do a good job if you've got the children to look after? And yet I was in Parliament with plenty of men who had children of exactly the same age as Tanya's or Nicola's, and they never got asked, you know, what's happening with your kids there's just this default assumption they must have a wife they must have a partner who's at home making this all possible for them so hugely frustrating and it you know could get to the stage where I sort of built a pretty big protective layer inside myself and didn't let a lot of these insults get in But by the time you're being labelled deliberately barren and you're reading newspaper articles that are comparing you with barren cows in the bush who were killed for hamburger mints, um, you know, it's uh, those things, even when you've got a fairly thick shield up, do get in in a little bit. In an interview with Carrie Bookmore last week that I watched, you noted that you wished you had spoken or perhaps done more about the sexism that you experienced when you were in office. If you had your time again, what would you do? Yeah, I mean, 
I think all of us uh, look back at the past a bit and think, what would have been different if? And you can't let yourself uh, let yourself obsess on that question because you're never going to get to the answer. We can't go backwards. But I do sometimes muse on the past and think, when I first came to the Prime Ministership and there was first some form of different treatment, if I'd tried to call it out then and spark the conversation then, would we have worked through some of the issues before it cycled up and got quite as crazy as it did with, you know, Ditch the Witch and all the rest of it? And probably the first of those I could have really picked on was the coverage of my second day as Prime Minister. So I was sworn in on one day. The next day I went to a shopping centre, talked with people, and the coverage was absolutely entirely about the jacket I was wearing. You know, Vox Pop Poles, what did you think of her jacket? It was a sort of three-quarter length coat. I mean, I was in Canberra, it was cold, it was winter. And I do wonder if I'd sort of said to the press gallery the next time I did a press conference, you know, are you going to spend all of my time as Prime Minister reporting what I'm wearing or are you going to sometimes report what I say about the policies for the nation and the big things we're trying to get done? I think they would have, you know, I think some heads would have gone back. It would have been like, woof, what she just said. And some of them would have been very defensive and possibly angry. But some might have taken it in and we might have, you know, provoked a conversation we needed to have. Do you think it would have been easier for you to speak up, though, if you had more support and more colleagues around you highlighting exactly what was going on? It's very difficult to stand up for yourself when perhaps everyone around you is silent. Yes, it is. And I don't put bad motivations on that silence. I think a number of people probably came to the same conclusion I did, which is the the gendered piece, the differential treatment would be worst at the start and then everybody would settle down, there's a female Prime Minister and then it would be back to business as usual. And many people, including myself, would have concluded from that, look, shining a spotlight on the gender stuff is just going to increase the amount of time we're talking about it, whereas really what we're trying to do is get to the politics as usual bit and be received as Prime Minister rather than first woman Prime Minister. So I don't put bad motivations on the silence, but I think silence is disempowering. And often the people who are best placed to call out sexism are not the people it's happening to. It's the it's the men, it's the other women who are in the room seeing the conduct who can often make the bigger difference. Because when a woman calls it out herself, you know, one, she mightn't be feeling that resilience in the moment to do it. Second, people are always going to have a little second guess about the motivation. Is she pointing it out because it's truly sexist or is she pointing it out because she thinks she's going to get some advantage out of pointing it out? Whereas someone from the outside coming in and saying, look, that wasn't right, they don't have that potential conflict of interest. Absolutely. Another fascinating aspect of the book was looking at women supporting women. And one quote I really loved was, women must champion each other. This can be difficult for us. Women have been pitted against each other since the beginning of time for that one seat at the table. Scarcity has been planted inside of us and among us. This scarcity is not our fault, but it is our problem. Later on in the book, you wrote, the politics of scarcity will tear women as a collective apart if we let it. I guess I want to know, did you feel at times that your women colleagues were more intensely critical of you than perhaps your male colleagues were? 
Within the Labor Party, you know, overwhelmingly, I experienced a great deal of support around gender questions from my colleagues, both male and female. And that doesn't mean that all of them were always supportive of things that I was doing. You know, politics is a competition. And, you know, people might have come to the view that I shouldn't be the one at the forefront of that competition. And that's fine. But when it was you know, gendered and difficult, I got a lot of support from colleagues. But looking more broadly, I do think the partisanship of politics means that it can be hard for women from one side of politics to, you know, actually lean across and support a woman from the other side of politics. I think looking at the media, there's, you know, and some female reporters have said this to me, that they get the little barbs and the little jibes when they go to interview a woman. You know, the assumption is that they're probably going to go soft in the interview. And if anything, I think they overreact the other way to show that they're not going soft. And so you do get that phenomenon where uh, female journalists, female reporters actually give women leaders a harder time. And Theresa May in the book speaks about that in the United Kingdom. So I think all of that is there. And because we've made some progress but not complete progress, we are still at the stage where around a corporate board table or in the ranks of senior management or in a cabinet for a country or at the legal bench, you know, there'll be two or three seats at a 10-person table for women and it's pretty easy for us to get into the mindset if we want one of those seats that the person we have to defeat is the other woman contending, not let's all get together and, you know, overwhelm the rules of this game and say that we want half of the positions. Through the work that you've done with women in leadership, what have you learnt about how we can be better allies and sponsors and supporters to each other? Because it's a strange thing, but I think it's right, it doesn't come naturally because of scarcity of positions. I think that whole thing about being allies and supporters and sponsors it's actually a learned behaviour. I mean, we we think that we should all just be inherently good at it. But one thing I've, I've really had to think about doing the research for the book and looking at all of the psychological research is that a million layers of complexity lie behind slogans like, you can't be it if you can't see it and things like that. And the research really shows that if Women can actually put other women off if they're not careful about the way they do the mentorship and the sponsorship and the advocacy. So, you know, the very fact that we spend a lot of time with each other talking about how difficult it can be, does that empower and encourage or does that discourage? And the research shows that if you harp on all of the difficulties without talking about the joy that comes with leadership, then you can discourage people. On the other hand, if you just try and say to women, it's all upside, nothing to see here, mm-hmm. you'll never have to face any of these problems, they they won't, you know, accept that because the real world experience tells them that's not right. The image of superwoman is disempowering. If women are out there saying, I do this effortlessly, then women can easily conclude, oh, I could never be like her. So we need to think about these things and there's a path that has to be one of authenticity 
talking about the difficulties but never forgetting to talk about the positive side and I have to remind myself of that I think all of us have to keep that at the forefront which is why the all up message of the book is go for it but be aware that there will be these you know bits where the treatment will be different than a man in a similar spot so be ready for it go for it but be ready for it. Julia, you said in an interview recently that when you were Prime Minister, you would consider yourself an analytical feminist, but now you consider yourself a sensitive feminist. What did you mean by that? What makes someone a sensitive feminist? Uh, Maybe it's just getting older and having a little bit more time (laughs) and a little bit less pressure. Maybe that's the secret. Um, I, I talk in the prologue of the book about how I came to feminism. So I always had this inherent belief that, you know, boys and girls were equal. And growing up in a family home of two daughters, you know, we were taught by our mother and father that we should aim high. It wasn't like there was a son in the family who was the favoured child. So there wasn't stereotyping in our home. When I got to university, uh, that sort of really intuitive sense uh, got joined to a more analytical sense. I came to understand things about feminism and discrimination. I learned about it, basically. And I always took that with me in politics. I was always a feminist. I was proud to be a feminist. I wanted to push for change for women, you know, but I did it in a very, you know, methodical, let's get this done, let's tick this box, let's get, a, you know, an affirmative action target in the Labor Party, yay, we've done it, tick, right, let's uh, help create a Labor women's organisation to support women, right, Emily's list is created, yep, tick, we've done it, um, you know, and, and I didn't savour, I guess, those moments of achievement and I didn't savour enough the chemistry of that sisterhood coming together. There's something more to it than just the practical dimensions of a team aiming to get something done. And now I'm at this stage where, you know, career-wise I've already topped out, you know, I've been Prime Minister. I'm now at this stage where, where I've, <laughs> <laughs> I've got... Uh, I've got, I think, more time, more space to reflect on these questions. And I don't, you know, I think it's harder when you're career building than when you're in, you know, know, it's not that I don't have a sense of having a career now, but I'm clearly in a different phase. I think my favourite quote of yours, and I know for sure it was my sister's favourite too, was in your parting speech when you touched on sexism on the job. You said at the time, it doesn't explain everything. It doesn't explain nothing. It does explain some things. I noticed as I was watching that speech back this morning and last night again that your voice didn't crack until you began speaking about the woman that would come after you and the woman that would come after that. I want to know, do you remember being overcome with emotion at the thought of how things could improve for the women who come after you in that moment? Uh, That was certainly the most emotional part of my final speech as Prime Minister. But talking about self-limiting behaviours, I had steeled myself for that speech Mm. and deliberately uh, decided that I wasn't going to, you know, I did have an emotional quaver in my voice, but that I wasn't going to cry. You know, political leaders uh, leaving office, losing elections, you know, male political leaders often do cry in that moment. But I did have the sense that if I cried, then that would give a lot of people the sense that, you know, somewhere deep inside us, we always knew a woman wasn't up to this top job. And I didn't want 
that to be my final impression as Prime Minister, that a woman couldn't take it. So I felt very much the need to show I could take it. And that whole thing about, you know, your final speech, when I interviewed Theresa May and we recounted her experiences in the book, I mean, I don't know if you've ever watched her final speech as Prime Minister, but she's outside Downing Street. And on the last line of the speech, which is a, you know, a line like, it's been, a, it's been the privilege of my life to serve the nation I love, she quavered a little in her voice and that was the end of that speech and she walked back into Downing Street. And that was reported as, you know, as if she had sobbed through the whole thing. And it just reinforced in me that there's this weird reaction to emotion and tears in women leaders. And I resent it, but I do think that it's there still. How do you feel now when you look to the future and you think of the future of women in Australian politics? How do you feel? Oh, all up optimistic, but wanting to see quicker and quicker rate of change. You know, I think we... I do. I said that in that final speech that I think it'll be easier for the next woman, and I do genuinely believe that. I think it will be easier. I think that one thing that comes very clearly out of the interviews is that for Jacinda Ardern in in New Zealand, who's the third female prime minister, or Erna Solberg in Norway, who's the second, things get easier the more that there are women at the top. So I'm optimistic. But boy, I do want to make sure that, you know, by the time I'm at the exit door out of this life, that we've had several more female prime ministers. And to achieve that, I think we're going to have to really pick up the pace of change for gender equality. What are you most proud of in your career so far? Oh, I kind of uh, hate those questions because... um, (laughs) I mean, I can take it back. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, it's... uh, I've joked that it's probably like a parent being asked, which is your favourite child? You know, you really... (laughs) You can't answer questions like that. I was, you know, always motivated by the politics of opportunity, by changing life's chances for kids, by making sure that they could live a good life. And so I'm very proud of our education reforms and I'm very proud of uh, the National Disability Insurance Scheme and the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse because I think they will make lives better for people in the future. I think they already are. And in the work I do now, I you know really like the mix and I feel a huge attachment to this area of gender equality, women and leadership. I'm very motivated by the work at Beyond Blue and, you know, want to see every girl on the planet get a great education. So it's coming together for me in something that very much reflects the values I hope I showed when I was in politics. Julia, we know this question sounds pretty morbid. We don't intend it to be that way, but what do you want your legacy to be? Oh, look, I'm not um, someone who spends a great deal of time thinking about, you know, how the history books write it up. But I, uh, you know, I know enough of how history gets written to know the uh, predominant achievement will always be being the first woman to be in the office of Prime Minister of Australia. And I'm happy with that. If that's the legacy, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty good one. Our last question, Julia, is always the same. And it is, with all of this in mind, how do you define success in your own life? Oh, success for me is pursuing the things you believe in and seeing them translate into action. 
but it's also not just about what you do in the world, but what you learn from the world. And one of the things that's a real delight for me now is I get to spend a lot of time in the company of young women. And I think I always walk away having learned something more. You know, I think the it's supposed to be a two-way thing, but I reckon I get the better end of the deal. Mm-hmm. I, I learn more than I ever impart in those conversations. Julia Gillard, thank you for joining us. We are extraordinarily grateful that you gave us your time. We know you're incredibly busy and we are such huge fans of yours and of this new book. So thank you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. That was a great conversation. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Julia Gillard. If you want to buy Julia's fabulous new book, Women and Leadership, you can grab it via the link in our show notes. It's also available in all good bookstores. As for us, well, if this is your first time listening to Shameless, welcome. We are two women in our 20s who, on top of a weekly Monday episode that wraps the latest pop culture news, interview an influential person every Thursday. If you enjoyed this chat, we think you'll also love our interviews with Paralympian athlete Dylan Alcott and our chat with Indigenous activist and writer and soon-to-be author Marley Silver. You can support our independent podcast by clicking subscribe on Apple and leaving a five-star review or clicking follow on Spotify. We'd so appreciate your support. We will be back in your ears on Monday. Bye, guys. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.